evening. You're very welcome to this edition of Ireland's Generation X, a series that focuses on the group of artists born between 1965 and 1985. We're delighted, as always, to present Ireland's Generation X in partnership with the Kilnockton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Simon O'Connor. I'm the director here at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland on St. Stephen's Green in Dublin. And though our museum doors might be closed at the moment, hopefully not for much longer, uh, we have been busy working behind the scenes on new exhibitions as well as our digital learning programme. So you can check out more on that work at molly.ie. This evening, we are joined once again by Professor Barry McRae, a novelist and a scholar of comparative literature, who will be in conversation with one of Ireland's most celebrated writers and poets, Nick Laird. Nick's recent poetry collections have been published by Faber and Faber, and his most recent publication, Feel Free, was one of the most well-received poetry collections of recent years. Before I go, I'd like to let you know about two other events hosted by Molly this week. Tomorrow, Thursday, I'll be hosting our monthly Directors Book Club at 5pm, which is free for Molly members. Uh, we'll be reading Megan Nolan's new novel, Acts of Desperation, and I'm delighted that Megan will be joining us for the hour in conversation. Then on Friday at 7pm, we celebrate the launch of Nuala O'Connor's new book, Nora, with the writer in conversation with Catherine McSharry, the Deputy Director of the National Library of Ireland. So I do hope you will join us for that and clink a glass from afar. Finally, if you enjoy this evening's programme, I would encourage you to buy Molly membership, either for yourself or a friend. Um, it really is the best way to support the museum and its programming at this time. So you can visit molly.ie forward slash membership to find out more about that. Um, with that, I'll hand you over to Professor Barry McRae and Nick Laird and hope you enjoy the evening. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon. And um, thank you everybody for coming. Nick, you're very welcome. Thank you. Um, so the idea um, behind these conversations is to mostly to get a sense of how writers and artists think of themselves, or even if they don't think of themselves, are part of a specific generation. And um, I was thinking there's a scene in your most recent novel, Modern Gods, in which um, a mother, actually she's a grandmother, goes up to the attic and roots around and she finds a an exercise copybook written by one of her... Um... Sorry, my phone. Not, not at all. No. Um, uh, so the character goes up to, up to the attic and she finds an exercise book, a copybook from one of her daughters when she was young. And there's an, uh, an exercise for English class in which the little girl has described, written a short story from the point of view of the town they're from, that as if the town is talking. And... Um, it made me think that this is something that comes up in your work a lot, um, the sense that people and place are not fully distinguishable things, um, or at least they're not easily distinguishable. Um, so maybe you might tell us about your place. You're from Cookstown and you're from born in 1975. So maybe just tell us something about the social and cultural landscape of the world you grew up sure. in. Um, so uh, Cookstown's always described in the promotional literature as nestled at the foot of the Sparrows. So it's a sm it's a smallish town, it was about ten to fifteen thousand when I was growing up, um, uh, right in the middle of Northern Ireland, um, the hub of the North. Um, Portadown calls itself, but actually it's Cookstown. So we were um, 
we kind of ended up there randomly. My dad uh, worked for the Royal Insurance in Dublin. He's from Ballyshannon in Donegal, um, and he got posted up to Derry. And then uh, whenever he left the Royal, he opened a, a business selling insurance, and he had some clients in Cookstown. So we just he just ended up there. And my mother's from South Armagh, uh, Mount Norris direction, but her family were all from West Cork, Bally de Hob. Um, but Cookstown is where I was born and went to Cookstown nursery school and primary school and Cookstown high school. And so it was always my town. Um, I go back or I did go back a lot. Um, you know, it's a market town founded in the 1600s and it's not a, a good looking town. You couldn't say it's a pretty brutal place, a long, hungry Cookstown. Um, they call it this one big, long street, but it was a great place to grow up. You had a bit of freedom. I was from the countryside outside it um, and just, you know, spend the days wandering around forests and fields and rivers and burning things and digging things and all the rest of the stuff. So um, I, I loved it there. Yeah. I mean, it was a good place to grow up and it gave you a real sense of place in that way. It wasn't Belfast. People, as soon as I got out, everyone would talk about Northern Ireland as if it was Belfast, but we, you know, in Tyrone, we were west of the barn very different um, place with sort of very different interactions between people. So I, I suppose um, when we're talking about Northern Ireland, we can't avoid um, the topic of uh, identity. And you're right there in that little biography you gave, um, even if you didn't know from your name, you'd know that you were a Protestant from the names of the schools you went to. So I think about identity, not as something that is inherent or um, uh, something internal to you, but as your first sense of, a kind of collective orientation in the world, maybe the first sense of yourself as belonging to a broader collective matrix. What 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 kind of identity was available to you there or given to you there? Well, I mean, growing up in Northern Ireland in the eighties and nineties, going to a Protestant school, um, we were in Mid Ulster had a terrible sort of spate of tit for tat killings, as they called them. So, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of bad stuff going on all the time, obviously, and. I had a good friend, Davy Harkness, who got blown up at a T-Ban. Him and I worked together in a bar from when I was 14, and, and his sister owned the bar, and um, I'd worked with him for years, and, and he was working on a roof um, at uh, Oma Police Station, and then in 1992, in the T-Ban bombing, he was killed, and my girlfriend's uncle was delivering bread in Dungana, and he got shot dead by the IRA, and so there was a lot going on, and at that stage, you definitely retreated into your kind of tribal identities, it was complicated for us because, I mean, my dad was Irish and we had Irish passports, always considered ourselves first and foremost Irish, but certainly wouldn't have declared that at school. Um, and really, you kind of retreat from politics, <clears throat> excuse me, you kind of retreat from any discussion of that or any sense of it. You know, we were technically Protestant, but we were Church of Ireland. And as you know, Church of Ireland is just about Protestant. So it was more to do with the received narratives you were getting from the church and the state and this kind of reaction, I suppose, to the death and carnage all around you. You did kind of want to stand, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the people who were getting killed. It's hard enough, actually, for me, whenever Martin McGuinness became my MP, you know, I, I, it's complicated. I do think of myself as Irish and have a wee cottage in West Cork and I go there every summer and most of my family still lives in um, in the Republic, uh, my extended family. But, um, you know, I, I, it, it's hard for me to 
be in America, particularly where our, you know our, our Irishness in America tends to be synonymous with um, the Republican element to some extent, and and that is complicated um, for me. So yeah, I mean, identity is a funny thing, and, and, and in a way, really, that's why I suppose I fell upon poetry with um, a kind of relief because growing up in in Tyrone, you do get given these narratives from the church, the state, your school friends, your peers, the news all the time. And poetry was definitely a space apart from that, like a space to have kind of considered reactions to things. And and that voice speaking in those poems, whether it was Longley or Mahin or Heaney or Yeats or whatever else, incredibly intimate space. The poem, you know, this kind of uh, transmitting of personal intimacies one-to-one and kind of shown of all those contingencies of of religion or sex or race or class or nationality or so it was definitely something that uh uh opened the world up to me in some way like it was um a way out a way of sidestepping those um narratives of catholic protestant nationalist you know all of that so those writers you just mentioned there because they're all they're all irish and all except uh, Yeats is uh, Northern Irish. Was that um, was your encounter with the uh, specifically the Irish literary tradition or the Northern Irish literary tr- tradition? <coughs> was that a, um, a particular a particularly liberating encounter um, as a way to move from, I suppose, what you might call your given identity as a person to your created identity as an artist? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, there were no books in my house growing up. My um, my dad didn't go to college or anything and um the first time I sort of encountered poetry really was at school and uh I think we did Yeats when I was 14 or so and then but but it was really Heaney Death of a Naturalist when I was 16 we got given it for GCSE and it really was about the world outside the door you know it was uh Balahi's only a few miles from Cookstown and coming to Heaney I was like, oh, well, this is something that is also open to me, I suppose. And then from that, there wasn't a bookstore in the town, but one one Saturday a month we would go up to Belfast and I would be dropped at the Waterstones in Castle Court, whatever it was, at 10 in the morning. And then my parents would pick me up again about three and I would just sit down in one of those wee wheelie stills, you know, with the rubber tops and just sit there all day and just read through the poetry section. So <clears throat> I'd save up and buy like the New Younger Ireland Poets or the Penguin Book of um, Irish Poetry edited by Mahin. Or I just was sort of accumulating all these things. And then one thing leads to another. You know, you encounter the next person who kind of blows your mind in a new way. Um, but it certainly started with Irish poetry. <clears throat> it was a book. It was Heaney's Government of the Tongue, actually, which was in my school library. Um, and I think it's the only thing I've ever stolen, but I didn't give it back. And um, I just read through that and through that book, you just come to people like Sylvia Plath and Elizabeth Bishop and Zbigniew Herbert and Auden, people I wouldn't have met otherwise, you know. And um, so that was a kind of doorway, a gateway book for me into lots of other things. Um, I can't remember your question now, Barry, sorry. I I can't either. But um, uh, one thing struck me while you were talking is that the childhood you describe, you know, digging and burning and running in fields on the one hand, sectarian violence on the other, and then um, consumption of poetry on the other. It does sound um, very like Heaney. And I wonder what you think, um, just going to our theme of Generation X, 
what the different maybe difference, especially for an artistic sensibility, there is between um, a Northern Irish poet of your generation, or, or writer of your generation, and um, Heaney's. Um, well, you know, very different formative experiences, I suppose, and and, and also different being a Catholic, of course, in, in, in the 60s in Northern Ireland than it was being a Protestant in, in the sort of 80s. Um, uh, you know, hard to put it exactly, but I definitely felt um, maybe my community was a little bit under siege fr from sort of the West Tyrone Brigade, um, who were doing a lot of killing at that time. And, you know, we didn't really even talk about it in the house. Like just every night you'd turn the news on and there'd be a new score of how many dead or who'd been blown up or whatever the thing was. And that was it. That, that was the way things worked. But, you know, oh, God's sake, sorry. Somebody really wants you. Somebody wants me. I don't know how to unplug this one. Anyway, so, um, but we would go up to my um, nana's in Ballyshannon at the weekends and, <clears throat> you know, had a kind of Irish existence. But the thing was complicated. Like, you had to kind of compartmentalise things and you didn't really want to get into a discussion of it. Things did change after the Good Friday Agreement. You know, I even noticed it with my parents that there would be um, a lot more interaction between the groups. Like, you know, my parents would be having people around for dinner and they were Catholic. And, and that didn't really happen when I was growing up, even though my parents would, would have been Irish. But everyone had kind of pulled back into themselves. Um, so I don't know. I mean, Seamus is... Um, upbringing is obviously in, in all of those poems and and in a way because Seamus had written those poems like you, you can't write those poems you know you have to try and find new ways of doing things um so I think it's the same with everything you try and strike out in, in a different way um but I didn't stay like I haven't lived in Northern Ireland really since I made since I was 18 um and I, I, I teach at the Haney Centre now in, in Belfast so I'm back now and then but a lot of it's done you know online and um, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, well, one quick thing before we just moved um, across to the next part of your life. One quick thing is I, I've always envied um, Church of Ireland people for the beautiful liturgy they get um, growing up. You know, the Book of Common Prayer is we, we get this, these very bland um, translations. Um, but I, I don't feel that that idiom, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't feel that that idiom has been, um, is very, at least not very overtly present in your work. Well, I don't think that the idiom is present, perhaps, but certainly part of the interest in language does come from being, from sitting, you know, there were times when my dad was church warden, we'd have to go to church twice on a Sunday, and big drafty, empty church, um, Derry Lauren, it's called in, in Cookstown, and you just, whenever you'd hear those kind of fabulous, thick biblical words like um, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, or Nebuchadnezzar, or whatever it was, a wee light bulb goes on, you know, I think if you're interested in language. And certainly part of the of the recital of prayers does seem to me similar to poems, something about ceremony, something about ending properly, something about putting thoughts in order. It's not unrelated. Uh, but then you went to study law. In, you went to, to Cambridge, um, but you started off by doing law. Is that right? Well... So I initially applied to do law. I, I hadn't been to England even at that stage, and my school applied me to Cambridge. They 
I think I, I was going to go to Queen's and then they had had a fella five years before me from Cookstown High who'd gone to a college at Cambridge and they decided it'd be a good thing for me to apply. So I, they just picked the college and I applied and my dad was very keen for me to be a lawyer. You know what it's like if you're from a small town and you're halfway clever, you're either a doctor or a lawyer, maybe a teacher. Um, but that was the plan. Um, so I'd done work experience with the local lawyers in Cookstown and started off um, applied for law and then my English teacher came to visit my mother and was very keen for me to do English and I kind of wanted to do English anyway so changed to do English but even when I was there I would keep meeting people in the town and they'd say oh your dad said you were studying law and I'd say well sort of I'll probably do it afterwards so after I graduated the deal was that um, uh, I would become a lawyer then so I went to do did a conversion course and studied law in, in London at the College of Law and then worked for four years as a lawyer. So, I mean, I think quite good training, actually, for a writer in lots of ways, particularly a novelist. It seems to me um, constructing an argument, taking a lot of information, finding out the salient bits, you know, putting it into order, persuasive, all that stuff. I mean, that Dickens got a lot of by hanging around, got a lot by hanging around the law courts and mm-hmm. stuff. But that was. Um, but so how how tell us about becoming a writer then how that how that process because your um your first novel and your first poetry collection came out in the same year I think is that right yeah so um I was writing them and I was writing even when I was working in the city of London I would write at lunch times or in the evening and I never I just never stopped writing you know people say when did you become a poet but all kids write poetry when they're four or five but I, I just kept on doing it. Um, and for whatever reason, a way of processing stuff, um, I'm still doing it. So I had a, I took a sabbatical. I went to um, Harvard with my um, partner. I think I met you at Harvard, Barry. Another Barry who was lucky enough to go to was Harvard. It? No, that was the Harvard Barry. Where, where did I meet you in Rome or in Harvard? I can't remember. Maybe anyway. So and then um, went to, to signed a contract for the poetry book and the novel, and then went back to work as a lawyer um, and tried to finish them, but just couldn't. Didn't have the time. I was working in uh, litigation. Um, I was working on th- interesting cases, like I was working on the Bloody Sunday Inquiry and uh, the Fox Hunting Inquiry and large scale commercial stuff. Um, but I knew if I didn't, I really liked the law actually and litigation sort of appeals to me being a bit argumentative and thrown but I knew if I didn't leave I wasn't going to finish the books and someone else could do the law but you know no one else is going to write uh, books about Cookstown. Well so on that so and I'm sorry to harp on this um, uh, this this topic of um, literary traditions and um, artistic identity but how did that sense of yourself shift then from being, um, you know, a young man, a young boy in Cookstown reading Heaney and um, and then going to Cambridge where you were had this, I suppose, very high octane encounter with the English literary tradition um, and then London and the, the law. And um, how did you, um, how did your sense of yourself as a as a writer and the I suppose not exactly the tradition, but I suppose the kind of imagined community that you were working inside change or did it? I never have felt part of any community. I don't say that lightly, like I genuinely haven't. I've always felt kind of on the outside. I mean, 
it's not true, obviously now, really, because I, you know, I, when my first book came out, Seamus was kind enough to drop me a note, and we became friends, and I would have seen him, and you do feel kind of welcomed into something, but certainly as a sort of apprentice writer, I've never part of anything. I never went to any writers groups. Never did. Never did anything. Just sort of reading and thinking and writing by myself. Cambridge was strange because in Northern Ireland, never felt quite Irish enough. And then you get to Cambridge, and then you're not English. You know, people think you're Irish when you're there, and it's all a process of estrangement. I did find Cambridge very difficult. Like I was very homesick. Um, mm. And, you know, you're meeting a lot of sort of public school boys who are incredibly confident, and I, I just didn't know anything at all. I remember writing what I thought was an essay and um, getting a note back, I think it was the first week when I was there, saying, this is not an essay. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, I've got I have a way to go here. <laughs> so, you know, head down and, and studying. And But, I mean, really a tremendous training going to somewhere like Cambridge. They really put you through it, um, and you do have to... To read and write and think and it was a pleasure for me then to do I did my first thesis um, my first sort of dissertation on McNeese and then I did my last one in my third year on um, the role of walking in Heaney, Mahan and Longley and so I knew what interested me and it was a way of trying to bring these new sets of skills that you're learning you know about literary criticism and thinking about poetry it's a way of bringing them to the stuff that you had all around you when you're growing up um, but I never felt part of Cambridge poetry scene or anything and in fact, at Cambridge, I'd sent some poems to the guy, Rod Mengham, who's a, a like sort of part of the Prynite school, and he sent them back and said, I can't help you with these. So then I sent them to Edna Longley at Queen's. I'd never met her or anything, but um, she sort of very kindly sent me an encouraging, but, uh, you know, fairly, she didn't pull any punches, let's say, you know, um, letter, which really was incredibly useful. Most of it said all these poems are... are or twice the length it should be. So um, that was useful. Um, I, I suppose I was thinking when I said um, community more of um, uh, dead writers, um, your sense of connection the way when Joyce went to college and read Dante, right. he thought, oh, finally somebody who's my equal. Who can, <laughs> is there, um, but I suppose um, you've, you've answered that, I suppose, in the fact that you ended up writing on McNeese. Yeah. Well, McNeese had, I, I don't think McNeese was, in any way similar to, to me and, and the old thing is I think if you're a Protestant in Northern Ireland people somehow put you in with Anglo-Irish writers but I mean I'm not Anglo-Irish I, I, I don't know anything about England really and I hadn't you know been there until I went to Cambridge but um, McNeese had a complicated uh, sort of connection with Ireland and um, I, also he's an absolutely fantastic writer so um, he appealed um, and had a way of sort of dealing with some of the stuff, especially in Autumn Journal, just felt very current. Uh, the stuff about the troubles, not the troubles as he called it, but, you know, the section 16 of Autumn Journal, Nightmare Leaves Fatigue, We Envy Men of Action Who Murder and Intrigue and Do Not Beg for Pardon, all that stuff. It seemed uh, completely contemporary to me. So uh, he was he was an interesting figure. Um, and at, at that stage, you could kind of write about him fitting into the 30s generation with Auden and, uh, you know, Spender and um, Cecil Day-Lewis. So, yeah, there was him. I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't think of myself as part of that community of dead writers, I suppose, but only by dint of by reading those people and writing back to them or answering them. But I suppose the, the, the big writer 
that I haven't mentioned was Muldoon um, and his his work. You know, we used to drive through the Moy every Saturday um, when we were going to see my, my granny in, in Mount Norris if we went up in Donegal. And I knew the Moy well uh, in college lands. And so Paul, Paul's work was speaking to, to to the other side, really. You know, um, Cookstown is sort of equidistant, weirdly, between Balahi and the Moy. So I sort of felt like um, they, they were both kind of interesting. I don't want to say precursors because they're twice as poets I am, but like, you know, people to read and people to think about. Your your, your voice is very distinct from 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 either of them, and uh, I think you can feel in your work the transatlantic movement um, a bit in in, uh, in images and idioms as, as well as everything else. Um, but you know, I spent the uh, I was just telling you there before we came on. I, I spent the Easter weekend um, reading your prose and your poetry together, which was an interesting experience. And there are a couple of recurring themes as it seemed to me or preoccupations that I wanted to just um, throw at you. I know it's a dangerous thing to do because you you, you might just um, uh, bat them away, but um, there's that, there is a recurring motif of doubling. I mean, siblings seems to come up a lot. There's the two um, brothers in Utterly Monkey and the two sisters in um, Modern Gods. And in both cases, there's... Um, one person who stays at home and one person who who goes away and um and i suppose I, when this seemed to me different to heaney where which has a lot of there's a lot about departure and return in heaney but in fact um you don't have departure and return you have departure and non-departure in uh, kind of exist simultaneously and that made me think that that was connected to another preoccupation I saw in the poetry about um, time passing and roads not taken and um, the inevitability. There's a, an extraordinary image in one of them. Um, I can't remember it now. I should have written it. We're shot into the future at the blistering speed of 60 minutes per hour or something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, at the time, I, I'm time traveling into the future at the blistering speed of 60 minutes an hour or something. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's there's so there's a lot and there's a lot of linear imagery like that. I wonder, does that make any sense to you? Does that is that a well preoccupation? I, think I, I suppose I, I, I had to write the strap. Like, I mean, to, Ugly, Ugly Monkey is 2005, so I can barely remember what's in it. But I do remember writing the strap line for that novel, and it was something like, "You leave home, but home follows." And the definitely, I think whenever you know, whenever Joyce was traveling or even Heaney was going, leaving home meant you left home. You know, you might if you went to America, you might come back once or whatever. But that changed for my generation, not just with the internet now and stuff, but before that with telephones and and um, long haul flights and everything else. You did stay in contact in a different way. And Northern Ireland, you know, has it has its hooks in you in various ways. It, it is hard to kind of get out of um, radio contact. To some degree, and and you always, as soon as you're back, you you're back in it. So I never felt that I was away, partly because I never stayed in one place when I left. You know, I think there was I, I, I was in moved to Warsaw for a while, and then I was in Rome for a few years, and I was in Boston, and then I was in London, and then I was in I've been in New York for the last ten years, and now I'm in London. So you know, home was always the place, Northern Ireland. There was nowhere else. Um, so I always felt that I was going home when you know when I got on the plane in Luton or 
<clears throat> at you know Fiumicino or wherever it was, I was going home. Um, so I don't know. I th- I, I, it's it's sort of been the kind of s- center that I orbited around. Um, yeah. I mean, so, so I mean, there's a. It's obviously a very. It's done in a very um, realistic way and a, a very um, sensitive way as well. Being forty-one, but in the book, in Modern Gods, somebody literally travels all the way around the world to arrive in a place called New Ulster. Um, yeah. So there is actually there is actually a place called New Ireland. Um, in it's an island off Papua New Guinea, New Ireland, and. Um, yeah, it is, it's maybe a bit broad, <laughs> but yes, I changed it to New Ulster. Um, you know, this Dublin idea, it, it is this sort of the, the, the looking glass that, that, that we can, you know, make of art and see ourselves. And I am sort of interested in that idea of the path not taken, of what you find, you know, w- when you go away. And, and certainly one of the things about going to Cambridge, for example, was this new perspective on Northern Ireland. Like what what a strange place to grow up in you know it, and 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 that it doesn't seem like that when you live there or you are there but what is Joyce what's the Joyce line the quickest way to Tara is via Hollyhead you know so get getting away from it allows you to see it clearly and, and that definitely that was true for me um in some regard you know it's sort of farcical Northern Ireland it's still the same you know we've just had five nights of rioting in Northern Ireland uh, there's like 30 police officers injured it's you know it's really it's a crazy place, um, but when you're in it, it doesn't seem that crazy. Or at least it seems crazy, but not farcical, let's say. But uh, quite a lot of the doubling, as far as I can see it, anyway, is connected to ambition um, as well. And there's one poem that really struck me. It's it's a very funny poem in um, Feel Free called Team Me, um, and the title must be a phrase you picked up in the US. I think it can only be. Um, Team me. I think I made it up. Um, well, it's very convincing. But in, in it, the poet meets um, something like his, his younger self, who is also the personification of his ambition and um, his sensitive ego. Uh, is that right? Is, is that yeah. is how I understood it? Yeah, he's wearing like a Christmas cracker hat from, yes. Christmas, from Christmas 1983 <laughs> or something. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. bat fangs, bowl cut. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it just made me think that the kind of the the, the you know the idea that you, know, you you travel half around the way around the world and you arrive in New Ulster is just seems to be a psychological truth too that you um, you travel very far ahead in time but there's always um, a little guy with pointy teeth and a right. paper hat from 1983 sitting opposite you. Right. I mean, it, it, the problem it turns out is you. You know, <laughs> you know that's the that's the <laughs> thought. Yeah. You can't you can't escape yourself. So I suppose there's that in it. Um I, I don't know. Like I'm 45 now and the poems still come as a surprise, but I suppose the 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 general kind of tenor of them is that uh like in the end it, it, it is you, you know, there it, it is the poems are sort of all ways of trying to come to terms with being yourself. Um, so there's one last one, one uh, last topic I'd like to ask you about before you read something for us. Um, and it's uh, about children and childlessness that also comes up both in the prose and in, in the poetry. Um, you know, somebody who doesn't have children myself, the poem on not having children, um, it, 
um, I, I find ex extraordinary. Also a painful poem. It has very sharp edges to it. But it's um, a topic that comes up again and again, um, paternity and children. Um, it's, it's a, uh, it seems to be a topic that is um, very alive for you in a poetic way, is that right? Like maybe, I, I'm not sure that I have that much sort of self-knowledge to, so that, so that poem on not having children was written for a friend of mine who is one of my oldest fr friends. He's a, a gay guy that I grew up with and was best man at my wedding and, and lives in London now. Um, does it have sharp edges that poem? It's 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 about it's about um, doggerel, isn't it? About how uh, some words don't rhyme. The thing about I suppose being a parent is that you spend a lot of your time having to do really boring, silly things or stupid things. And I was thinking of doggerel as that kind of poetry, you know, these um, Doctor Zeus, you know, books or whatever. This very full-on rhyming stuff and how that, in a way. The rhyme itself was sort of like having kids. I'm not explaining it right. The poem does a better job, hopefully. But um, yeah, I didn't I really think it more as being about the fact that some things don't lead anywhere. Um, they are they just they just occur and stop, um, and which is neither bad nor good. But yeah. the poem just evokes the the shape of those kinds of things um, that can't be woven into a ballad or a book in the Bible where God isn't mentioned. These yeah. strange things that just occur and are just um, I suppose once-offs. Yeah, I think that I was interested in trying to write a poem that seemed like a collection of splinters. You know, the the the, the lines sort of stand alone um, and sort of are unrelated yeah. almost towards the end. And then hopefully it starts to draw clear, more clear, what the poem is trying to work towards. I'm, I'm interested in trying to go into, I suppose, a slightly difficult area in a in a poem like that, and trying to say something true um not you know without being sort of sentimental or silly or i don't know yeah um so that uh, I, the time is um going really oh, yeah. fast so um um you're going to read something first so do you want you can either introduce it um sure. if you'd like or just go straight into it um so i was going to try and read something new but the only new thing i have is uh, the, the, the sort of bad thing we haven't talked about is that my father died um, three weeks ago from COVID in um, Antrim Hospital. And uh, I, I couldn't see him and we, we couldn't go into the hospital. We couldn't bring him home or have a wake or anything. And um, even the even the cremation was just my sister and I at um, Rose Lawn in Belfast with 10 cousins standing in the car park watching a video screen of his mm. coffin going to the furnace. So... It's pretty brutal. Um, my mother um, died three years ago. She she was young. She was sixty seven of um, cancer. So my dad had been on his own and um, sitting in Cookstown, just waiting for a year in lockdown. And you know, he's like the guy who gets shot after the day or whatever. He seemed at the end of it, but um, so he died. So I've written a sort of poem. I was going to read it out. I've already. Uh, Maybe it's a bad idea, but anyway, we are here. It's sort of eight or nine pages. Um, so we sections, I'll, I'll sort of maybe put my hand up to mark the section. Um, I, I've never read it out loud before, so bear with me. I already sent it to a magazine to publish because I sort of needed a shot of it. I needed to pass it on, like the black spot in Treasure Island, you know, I needed to get rid of it. So something to do with discharging it, with um, sharing it. And apologies for the seriousness of the... Enterprise. Will I just go ahead, Barry? 
uplit. If I shut my eyes to the new dark, I find that I start to experience time in its purest state, a series of durations rising and dilating beneath my inward gaze, each instant coming at me like a mass of shadow erupting blackly in blossom, like a jet of time, where the mind is held aloft, alone, jostled and spun like a ping pong ball. My father died today. Sorry to bolt that on. You understand the shift required. This morning, the consultant said, your father now is clawing at the mask and is exhausted and we've thrown everything we have at this. It's a terrible disease. He promises to give him morphine and that a nurse will be beside him at all times to hold his hand and talk him through it. It being the transition, the change of state, the fall of light the trade, the instant of the hand itself turning from the subject into object. No, we are not allowed in the ward and there cannot be exceptions. Thank you for making this difficult call. But I know what the body wants. Continuance, continuance, continuance at any cost. But dying then, as we speak, my father in the IC ward of Antrim Area Hospital the icy ward, the ICU, ICU too. On Sunday, they permitted us to Zoom and he was prone in a hospital gown strapped to a white slab. The hospital gown split at the back and the pale cold skin of his back was exposed. He lifted his head to the camera and his face was all red, swollen, bisected vertically by the mask. And we had to ask Elizabeth the nurse to say his words back to us. He sounded underwater. It's been a busy day, but not a good day. I could see even with the mask on, your little satisfaction with the phrase managed out. And the achievement left you so depleted, you lowered your head back to the slab, having done with us. Like some seal on a rock looking up as we pass on the Blue Pool ferry out to Garanish. Dad, you poor bastard. I see you. You lay like that for a week alone with your thoughts in the room, tethered, breathless, undefended. The eye adjusts even to darkness, even to the presence of what overwhelms us. And as I make my way from the bed to the study, the soles of my feet on the carpet warp it as any fabric made of this space time will distort beneath the force of a large object and my father, as it happens, is gigantic. And if you thought an understanding could be reached, you are wrong, for it could not. The goldfish pilots the light of itself through a ten-gallon darkness, and I keep watch as the large hand of the clock covers the small and leaves it behind to the weak approximation I sit here in and finish writing. I want the poem to destroy time. What are the ceremonies of forgetting? There is a spring in Boeotia that lets the river Letha enter our world. King Jucky's ale of forgetfulness, excessive phlegm. But I like the notion of the angel lightly tapping the baby in its soft hollow above the top lip, erasing all the child knows, all its grief, all its terrible regret, before it descends again fresh to the world.
After your stroke, you were born once more as smaller, grayer, softer. And after mum died, left bewildered, adrift, ordering crap online and following the auctions, the horses, the football, the golf, but hungering for company, for anyone, sending money to that Kenyan who was younger than me and flying out to Germany to see her and again before Jackie arrived on the scene, the bottled blonde who had her demons, at which she meant she was a violent alcoholic. The with Louise things seemed steady enough for a few months before you got stuck in one of your loops about her ex-husband funding her and the changing plans of her ingrate daughter. You could never let anything go. A trait I also suffer from and kind of admire, but it's not a possibility here. The tick of the clock is meltwater dripping into the fissure. The minute hand clicks across the R hand and hovers for a minute, exactly. And impinging on the vision is your slack, wild face and the way a nurse's hand might hold your hand or try again to lift your hand, but your hand now will not respond. I have been writing elegies for you all my life, Father, in one form or another, but now I find the path is just this game trail through the forest, the forested mind, which I must follow in the manner of an animal, a deer, a fox, a chimpanzee, returning to the clearing to nuzzle the corpse, to lick its nape or bite it softly, to look away and look again and wait for a response. One hand on the clock holds the other for a minute before going on alone. It is death that is implicit in the ticking. One must negotiate the next moment. The mind will not stop and certain things are good to think with. Goldfish, carpet, clock. I want something fit to mediate the procreative business of redoubling the brittle world and settle on an image for a second since it is a given that the mind will keep returning to the magic, the le jeu de main, the trick, one hand holding your hand as it turns into an object, as I turn back along the track towards the fold, towards the corner of the field where the father's body lies, and with an animal's dumb clarity, do grief work, kiss your hand and kiss your cheek and leave my forehead for a time pressed against yours. When I phoned the hospital this afternoon to say goodbye, <clears throat> though you were no longer lucid, Elizabeth the nurse held the phone against your ear and I could hear your breathing, or perhaps the rasping of the oxygen machine, and I said what you'd expect. I love you, Dad, and I want you to keep on fighting, but if you are too tired now and in too much pain, then you should stop fighting and let go, and whatever happens, it's okay. I love you. You are a good father. The kids love you. Thank you for everything. Then I hung up and seen. Impossible to grieve and not know the vanity of grief, to watch oneself perform the rituals that take us. Automaton of grief, I howled, of course, by myself in my office, then sobbed for a bit on the sofa. An elegy, I think, is words to bind a grief in, a companionship of grief, a spell to keep it safe and sound, to keep it from escaping. There are various ways to memorise Plato calls and Nemo sign. My grandfather Bertie liked to tie a knot in his blue handkerchief. My father wrote in Biro on his palm. I cannot leave the poem alone. Do you remember the pure world? I remember it from being a kid. All was at stake in that place. One moved through it sideways, through forests of time, 
lost in them and had to be called back to the moment. Infinities growing in stone, in moss, in the hay shed, the rain, the wind, in the darkness under the cattle grid. Rilke says of the pure, unseparated element, someone dies and is it. It's after two. You're dead by now, I hope. Who thought to write that? But there's no hurry now, no effort, no need to call. You might be only sitting in your red chair, endlessly flicking through the channels. When I asked the doctor, Andrew Black, he said, it could take minutes, it could take hours. When I see you slumped, not sitting up, propped against some pillows with your eyes closed, something in you finally given up, defying gravity. Some obedience to objecthood settled in you now and set up home, set in stone. Outside on the motorway, the headlights of the vehicles are necklaces of diamonds, double strung, and trailing westwards alongside them, the necklaces of garnets. Dad, I cannot stay in the room with you too long in my mind. It is too hard. I thought there would be futurity. I thought things would happen, nothing major. Barbecues, why barbecues? God knows. You're walking around Bantry at the Friday market in your shorts in the rain, your white tube socks pulled tightly up and a bright T-shirt from some Spanish golf course tucked into your shorts. By the way, we are even, you and I, no need. Look, I absolutely still the room is. Outside, the widowed sky has grown huge with stars. The Milky Way meandering like the Ballanderry, though the night has come with work to do. It sits with you and broods. It wants you to come at your own pace, and at the next moment, you might get up and speak clearly to everything. Creation, extinction, infinities rising within you. Alistair Laird is dead. Fuckity fuck, fuckity fuck, 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 fuck. My dad is dead. Bad luck. The light breaks and the night breaks and the line breaks and the day is late assembling. Rows of terraced houses are clicking into place. Clouds decelerate and make like everything is normal. The children wanting porridge. Voices forcing pattern out of circumstance, pitching rhythmic incident on little grids of expectation, satisfaction, disappointment. This new all. And walking to school, at the corner where the halfway house is, leaves animated in the briefest circle by the wind. That's it. Sorry, Barry. Well, that's uh, that's an extraordinary um, piece of work um, that you've wrought from an unbelievably painful situation. It's an ex extraordinary piece of work. Um, thank you for it. Yeah, I should have read some short funny poems. Not that I can <coughs> write short funny poems, but <coughs> no, anyway, it's, an it's, an, it's an incredible poem. It's an incredible poem with these sh short words for a long time, and then built out. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, um, we have questions coming yeah. in, so we'll go. We'll, we'll go to those. But um, thank you again. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, that. Barry. Since you mentioned time and doubling. All, all through that poem is time and doubling, the kind of the, the doubling of making metaphor, really, which I suppose is always a, a sort of way of apprehending the world in a in a in a different way. 
Anyway, sorry. Yes, sorry. Well, yeah. this, this image of the clock hands um, that comes up a few times is uh, is really um, marvelous. Um, and then on that, I see it's connected to this this poem you have in Feel Free about the um, father's hand and the cigarette silk cut. I think it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, enough enough from me. Um, let's um, go to the question. So, um, do you think that travel and the perspective that travel brings is essential? to a well-rounded writer? Oh, interesting question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, maybe. <laughs> um, I don't think it's necessary. I suppose you could think of people like John McGahan or people who seem to not really go anywhere but know everything. So, you know, horses for courses, really. I think some people it helps, some people it doesn't. But then you have someone like Joyce who, who only wrote about the place he left, you know. Uh, so. I, Maybe is the answer. I'm just going to stick the light on. Yeah, I mean, Joyce is certainly a, a new Ulster situation. Um, yeah. But um, um, so there's um, there's the, some lot of compliments for the poems. And Margaret uh, Margaret Callagher, um, hi, Margaret says, um, thanks for your generosity in reading this elegy to us. Your words will linger long, and deep condolences on your. Losses. There's lots and lots of people commenting on the poem. Oh, thank you. Um, um, but there is a, a comment from Mary, what the body wants at any cost is continuance. As my mother died seven weeks ago, I recognized this. So there's a question. The poet must always, must always be the conscience of the world. Famous quote, how can a poet survive these absolutely inhumane times of nowadays? So how does a poet survive our times? it's a good question you know I, I don't know the answer I, I've had to kind of block most um, ways of the world getting at me you know like the, the newspapers and I listen to Radio 3 all the time and I, I, it's become so intense I remember growing up my dad would like read the newspaper and that was his way of interacting with the world for the day. But since all the channels are open 24 seven, um, it's become really difficult. I, I don't have a smartphone, I've never had one. Um, but even I find myself carrying the laptop from room to room, just aimlessly, what do they call it, doom scrolling. So you have to, you have to try and hold it off, I think, because it doesn't, it doesn't leave any space for thought. Um, you just constantly receiving information um, I'm not trying to process it or, you know, turn it around and make something creative from it. I've just got to the stage now where I have a, a this, I'm in my shed at the end of the garden and, and I leave my laptop in here when I finish work and don't, because I need to, I need to be away from the world. And the internet seems to have ruined everything, but it certainly seems to have ruined our capacity to concentrate. I can't read novels in the way I used to. So I'm trying to do that again. And one of the ways is, not to bring any you know way of interacting with the world into the house um if, if I, it pulls you you know if, if you have your phone or your laptop in the room there's some part of your brain that's always sort of attuned to it so i try and create physical distance and i have a thing called freedom that comes on every day blocks the internet and but so the, the world is very bad but the world has always been very bad uh, what has changed is that we're constantly in connection um, with the world um, and I'm not like climate change is obviously a new thing, but 
yeah, I don't I don't know the answer to that either. But just try and make space for yourself, and and don't and don't allow the world and the algorithms and the news in all the time. Um, in addition to freedom, just since you bring it up, I use um, something called a lockbox that my brother gave me for my birthday a few years ago, which is a it's a timed safe. I turn my phone off and put it inside, and um, you get you yeah. know three hours. And it's when you're not near a device or able to access one, it's like the most precious, miraculous gift that you can be given. It just feels yeah. like you you have superpowers. It's an incredible feeling. I agree. Um, do you think that the, this is a question for me just on that, do you think that the job of the writer and maybe specifically poet or novelist is different, has changed um, now? Or is it something that is, it's always, it's always been difficult and complicated and just continues to be so? Um, yeah, or well, the teacher of literature, I should add, in that list. Uh, the teacher literature, yeah. I mean, it, it, well, we talked about this. You and I talked about it off screen, but it's become harder to think about craft, not not linked to content now. And certainly, and the internet has it, it's it, it's become harder to talk about poetry. I think, in particular, as being about these sort of transmitting of personal intimacies and something about social media, where which is all about these sort of stridently identified selves you know you know based on you know sex or gender or race or nationality or and poetry that isn't from, you know like that i i don't think like when i read dickinson or, or or whitman or whoever it is sappho or i'm connecting with something very personal and intimate between the two of us um and i think those things have kind of maybe bled into each other and not in an, in an entirely helpful way um so I think trying to get back to one of the ways I found that has made it possible for me to teach in America is to um, take all the names off the poems that I show my students. And that kind of bewilders them a little bit because they don't know what to think of the poem or how to approach it if they don't know, you know, when it's from or who's written it or. So, uh, yeah. That's a top tip. Um, I must say that's um, yeah. what I use. Um, uh, when when do you read? I'm just curious. I ask everybody this, but like, what what parts of the day or week do you read? When when does that happen? Um, just sort of all the time. I'm I've a lot of student work on at the minute, and I'm doing other so other like work script work. So, but at night I try and read at night. But also, I'm lucky enough to you know not have to work a proper job. So I read during the day when the kids are at school. If if they go to school, they just went yeah, back and watch the. I've been homeschooling for a year basically. So. Yeah. So Catherine would like to know what magazine the poem will be published in. It'll be in Granta. Yeah. And there's a question from Matthew. Um, how do you feel about the notion of writing a poem and letting it make sense to the writer over time? Does this chime with the idea of trying to find out something new about oneself each time? Yeah, it does. And actually, <clears throat> there are certain poems that I've only sort of figure out what they're about after they've been published. And then you maybe notice something about it. There's a, there's a poem in, in To A Fault, my first book on it. I noticed, it's, I think it's Cuttings, the first, the first poem in the book, which is about my father and I going to the barbers. A fellow called Adrian McCahey um, in Cookstown used to cut our hair. But you realize that, I realize that the poem sort of goes out in these metaphors from a very small thing to a very large thing, stuff that's completely unconscious that you just sort of notice afterwards. 
So I am interested in that kind of process of revelation in the work. I don't kind of want to write or I'm not terribly interested in other people's poems that are telling me what I already know or just sort of repeating things. I do want it to be a kind of space of exploration. Something surprising has to happen. If something surprising doesn't happen for the writer, you know, it's, it doesn't happen for the reader either. So I, I do want um, that. And if, if you're lucky, you find it. But, you know, you've got to wander around for a long time. Um, and on that topic, then, um, can I ask you how you, if you note, uh, notice anything about the evolution of your own style as, as you get older? Not really. Um, I don't. Uh, so the way I've always worked is because poetry has always sort of been, I don't mean a side gig, but I, I don't sit all day and try and write a poem necessarily. Um, I, I collect, I'll have loads and loads of files on my computer with little tidbits, little words that rub together in an interesting way for me and I'll write them down. It might be just a phrase. Berryman talks about the cough, the odour, the chime. So something will have sort of made some kind of interesting little um, impression on me and then I'll write it down and then I'll, I tend to come back to it and try and, you know, work it up into something. And But I've always done that. You know, um, it's rare that the poem will come... <laughs> whole you know by itself it's always a kind of process to me of endless revision and fittering around with it and seeing what happens and and things coming in and going out or the, the poem being you know some half of it'll be chopped off or I'll merge it with another poem or it takes me a long time I'm, I'm a slow slow worker you do have as you know good poets always do you have an eye for images especially images that sort of turn the world upside down and they they come up in the poetry of course but they come up in your prose too there's a couple in the the novel there's one there's a description of somebody peeling an apple um that is um i can't i wish it, i remember it says fluently is the adverb but there's a description of the way the coil gathers underneath the apple that it says the apple is producing a green coil or something and it right. seems to me a very poetic way of inverting what's happening because one would usually think that this Something's been taken away from the oh, right. skin. Because, as you say that, Barry, fluently, I'm thinking I nicked it from um, a Muldoon poem, because doesn't he say fluently peeling an apple? In the, I think it's in the Weepies. He's Will Hunter fluently peeling an apple. So it's entirely possible it's stolen. Um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah but the, the, the bit that I was actually complimenting you on was not the stolen goods. Um, luckily, though, it was the, it was the other bit. Um, uh, and then there's another one about the uh, the spider being the host, I think, um, in the in the attic. This is just a very fleeting image. Uh, I know this is a very big question to end on, but I feel that those kinds of images that seem to um, have meaning inherent in them are different in a youthful writer. And I'm not that you're not youthful; we're the same age. So that's but uh, but they're. They, they take on a different resonance as the writer grows older. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it was something that I felt very much reading you this weekend. Thank you. We can leave that as a comment, maybe no more comment. All right. Oh, sorry. So, well, sorry, the no, spider being question. the host, I, I suppose that's interesting to me, is, the, is a kind of discombobulating image, an image that reverses the thing. So the idea of some, somehow the, the spider being the host and you the intruder, that is interesting to me. There's something that... Um, Casts everything in a new light. Um, 
So actually, just remember, we're at our time. Um, thank you very much, Nick, for the conversation and especially thank for the, the poem. It was um, a real privilege for us. Um, and I would just like to tell everybody that our next uh, event is on the 5th of May when I'll be talking to Katrina Lally. Thanks very much, Barry. Thank you very much, Nick. Take care. Bye.